Welcome to the Writing Block Podcast, where we talk all things writing and indie publishing. I'm Becca Spence-Tobias, and today's episode is all about university presses. We're happy to be joined by guests Andrew Brzanskis and Travis Steinling. Andrew is the Senior Acquisitions Editor at the University of Washington Press, and Travis is an Acquiring Editor for the Sounding Appalachia Series at West Virginia University Press. How's everyone doing today? Doing great. Good. Thanks for having us. Of course. Thanks for being here. So today we're talking about university presses and how they might differ from other types of publishers. So let's just dive in. Uh, Why might a nonfiction author consider submitting to a university press? I think that when a lot of people think of university presses, mostly they think about them as being just for academics or, or just for students. And there's some truth to that because a big part of what university presses do is publish the work of professors, publish the work uh, you know, of, of people associated with the academy in some way. But most university presses are much broader than that now. And most university presses have lists or parts of their publishing program that are deliberately aimed at general readers that are written by people who they may not have PhDs, but they're certainly, you know, experts within their field. And university presses are usually well positioned to reach very specific target audiences that they publish for, as well as a lot of other things that university presses do to make things, make a manuscript into a better book like peer review. But I'll let uh, Travis jump in too. Sure. Well, you know, I, I come to this uh, first and foremost as a professor. Uh, you know, my, my uh, work in acquiring titles at WVU Press is actually, it's, it comes as a result of my, my uh, being a professor uh, and somebody who's written a lot about about popular music and, and other things. Um, and so for me, a university press has been important for uh, kind of meeting the, the gold standard for promotion and tenure within my own job. But uh, beyond that, for me, I see a university press as having the opportunity to really, as Andrew said, reach that audience that's going to be most interested in my in my work. And so you know, a university press, aside from a couple of the larger houses, they tend to have a, a more focused acquiring list. Uh, And so if you work in a a very specialized area, chances are the other people who are working in that area who are interested in those topics are already aware of the press. And so getting involved, uh, you know, getting getting a a book in with that that press is going to be good for getting your work out. The larger houses here, like Oxford uh, comes to mind, they tend to have more of a global reach. And in that case, uh, there's the opportunity to get big work put out into a very large, uh, but still somewhat focused audience. Uh, it's not like a Barnes and Noble type book most of the time at these university presses, uh, you know, a big trade house where they're going to print more than they uh, could warehouse maybe um, and end up pulping some of those copies or remaindering them. So uh, it's a long-winded way of saying it's about getting it to your audience. It's about getting it to people who are going to be interested. Yeah, uh, a lot of our authors are fiction authors, and I know I don't know about University of Washington, but I know WVU does put out some fiction. Why might a fiction author look at a university press rather than a small press or a traditional publisher? Well, from from my perspective, as a as a strictly nonfiction author, but somebody who uh, sits on the board at WVU Press as well, and kind of sees the titles that come through, um, the sorts of books that that seem to come through. Uh, our review process are ones that have a very specific sort of regional or thematic uh, focus. 
So, you know, if you look at the WVU Press website, there are a lot of uh, Appalachian-oriented fiction titles. And there's also a series that focuses on over, previously overlooked books, uh, particularly by people of color and, and African-Americans specifically. So in that case, you know, knowing that the, that press has a particular interest in your regional storytelling or, uh, or, or a particular focus might be a real reason to do that. Could both of you maybe talk a little bit about proposals and how they might differ from the kinds of proposals that our authors are used to sending out? So I'm happy to take that one first. I think that the proposals that a university press is looking for actually will look a lot like the proposal that you're preparing for a commercial house. We have the same big question. What's your book about? Why is it important? What's new about what you have to author? What, offer? What's your, uh, what are your credentials that make you an expert in this subject? What are your thoughts about who the readership for this book is? And in a realistic way, how can we as a press and you as an author actually reach those readers? I think that um, what may be different in approaching university presses about a book than a commercial house is that University presses are less likely to be working with agents. You're more likely to be reaching out directly to an acquisitions editor. That's certainly not always true. At the much larger university presses, many more of their books will be agented. But for the average smaller or mid-sized university press, you literally can just find the agent's email address. I'm sorry, the editor's email address on the website, email them directly and start a conversation from there. In my experience, one of the things that, and I again, having not pitched a book, uh, one of the things I've seen that's particularly relevant is thinking about market space uh, and knowing, you know, kind of what other books might might be like yours out there. Because uh, university presses, especially the smaller houses, tend to work with smaller margins uh, in their budgets, and so the truth that's the gospel truth. <laughs> yeah, and so so having having a good sense of what the market looks like uh, and is is really important. And so if somebody doesn't happen to fall into a relationship with an editor, like I was lucky enough to do with Travis, who was my friend before he became my editor, how would you recommend that an author who aspires to work with the university press find somebody who's the right fit for them? Who should they look to to reach out to? Well, the first thing, if you want to find a university press that's the right fit for you, you want to definitely spend some time getting acquainted with what, with what they publish. As an editor who spends a lot of time declining things in my inbox, half of the things I decline are proposals that just simply aren't things we publish in. I decline poetry manuscripts. We don't do poetry. I, I decline novels. We don't do novels. And I feel like even just spending five minutes on a website figuring out what a press does is, is, a, is a great way to get started. And I guess the other piece of advice, if you're trying to find the right university press for you, is to look at your own bookshelves and say, you know, who, whose books am I buying? Like, who, who, what other books speak to what I'm doing? And if you do have a lot of a book, a presses books on your bookshelf and they relate to your manuscript, you're probably there's a ch chance there you're going to have a much uh, better fit and a more productive conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I would also say if there are opportunities for you to to make face to face contact with editors, a lot of times university presses will send their acquiring editors to conferences. Just having some face-to-face -face contact can be really useful there. Uh, I know in, in my experience, I've, I've learned a lot about what presses I would like to publish with and which ones I absolutely wouldn't want to publish with just by having a cup of coffee at a conference. I'll also add that um, I regularly have people email me out of the blue who are strangers and they just send you know three paragraphs and say, hey, I'm writing a book about this. Is this the kind of thing you're interested in? 
And I can really quickly write back and say, nope, not my thing. Or I can say, yeah, I'm intrigued. Uh, let, let's find a time to talk on the phone. But um, as an editor, I absolutely love it when people reach out to me. In certain respects, if you got a really good book and you reach out to me with it, like you've done my job for me. Because much of my job is actually proactively going out in the world and looking for books. So editors definitely do want to hear from authors. It definitely makes it easier if you can write a really succinct summary and say, here's the kind of project I have. Does this whet your interest or not? And then we go from there. One thing that I think is different, and Andrew, please correct me if, if I'm misguided in this, is that it would be very much atypical for you to pitch the pitch the same project to multiple university presses at the same time. My understanding, uh, having been a, a reviewer and having, having pitched books, is that those books, university presses normally require them to go to some sort of external review as part of their own business procedures. And inevitably, that costs money for the press. I mean, they're going to pay in either books or a small stipend, an honorarium, uh, to do that work. And so you don't want to waste people's resources. But second of all, university press publishing is a really small world. And uh, so if you cross one person, chances are you're going to cross several. Uh, and people, they talk about the projects that are in the hopper pretty, pretty regularly. Uh, so you definitely want to kind of go, at least in my experience and understanding, is one at a time, uh, which kind of slows the process down a little bit um, because you have to wait for that review. But uh, it's kind of, again, my understanding, the best practice. I actually have a slightly different take on that. Um, in my experience, if you have a, pro a proposal that you're shopping to university presses, at the stage where you're just sending out the proposal, you are welcome to send it out to as many people as you want, 10, 15. And to be honest, if I'm talking to somebody with a really good project, I often assume there are three or four other presses courting the same person because a good project is, is a good project. Now, I think what Travis means about when presses want to be more exclusive in their conversations is when they want to actually take the proposal and spend some money and send it to some outside experts to have the project vetted. And that may, a press may say, hey, you have a proposal, you have two sample chapters, and it's a book about history. We want to send this to two historians and get their quick response as to whether or not your research holds up well and whether or not it's something we should pursue for an advanced contract. And at that stage, if I were the editor doing that, I would say, you know, this isn't officially under contract, but I do want to know that we have exclusive consideration at that point. And so I think for anyone who is an author, the thing to do is just to always be really frank and upfront with the editors you're talking to. And just say, you know, I, I'm just to let you know, I'm sending the proposals to other presses. And then if they reach the point where they say, hey, we'd like exclusive consideration, you need to be frank with everybody else you're talking to. So we're touching on it a little bit, but could we go a little bit deeper into the entire process? Because until I started writing for WVU Press, I had no idea what this process was. I was used to <laughs> working with a publisher where I wrote they sent back edits, I wrote, they sent back edits, I didn't know anything about peer review. So can we talk about what this looks like from start to finish? Sure, I've been on been on all sides of that as an author and as a reviewer and as a series editor. The way that works is typically, uh, as Andrew said, it's a couple of chapters initially. Some presses uh, will expect a, a full review uh, of the manuscript later uh, as well, depending on kind of what their, again, what their procedures are and, and their policies are. But then that will go to experts in the field, and it will be people in fiction, often people who've written similar kinds of 
projects or who write along on certain themes that are present in the work or, or are regionally appropriate. Um, in nonfiction, it is normally experts, uh, you know, scholars in the field uh, who, who have bona fide credentials that they know what they're talking about. And that process can take, in a good situation, a couple of weeks. In less good situations, it can take a few months to get just that material read and responded to. Uh, at that point, then, might go to an advanced contract, meaning that you kind of you know, signed, assuming you're going to put the manuscript together and finish the project, and, and then you go to write. But that peer review process can take a substantial amount of time that I think a lot of people, especially with their first book, maybe aren't, uh, aren't prepared to have to take. I would add that for people who are coming from outside of academia, the peer review may just seem like it just makes the process a lot longer, and it does. It definitely can add a lot of work, as Travis mentioned, to your project. But I think it's really important to get a book right, and I think it's important to break it till it works. I think it's important to have experts pick it apart in manuscript form because before they do it in the final book form. And so I think peer review is a real unique strength of university presses, and it's the kind of expert feedback that you're not going to get from anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have had peer reviewers come back on projects and suggest wholesale revisions to the organization, suggest entire bodies of literature that I missed, point out an archive. I mean, like, there's a, you didn't know that this thing existed? Well, it just came available. You should go check this out. I mean, that, that, uh, that scholarly expertise or professional expertise is really useful from the writer's perspective. Uh, and I always value that. You know, I've honestly, I've had peer reviewers later on when they review the full manuscript go to the level of line edits. My last book with Oxford, both of my peer reviewers uh, who uh, have revealed themselves to me as uh, you know, kind of dear colleagues went through line by line and, and copy edited the book for me. Uh, so it could be, you don't expect that <laughs> in every instance, but sometimes you know, there's some real generosity there. And, and, you know, it's prevented me from doing some stupid stuff, too. Uh, so I really, I value that peer review process. It sounds like it's important, but maybe a little bit difficult to, <laughs> to stomach sometimes. Do you have any tips for authors who are going through it or who want to go through it? And I imagine that this could be relevant to authors who are waiting during all kinds of waiting <laughs> times in publishing, not just with university presence. Right. Well, I would say first thing to remember is that no news is no news, <laughs> right? Uh, just because you know, just because it's taking two months, and and the acquiring editor said it would be four weeks, uh, doesn't mean that your, your project is in danger. It probably means it's sunk to the bottom of somebody's to do list. And so, uh, I think you know, patience is really important during that. Remember that other people uh, are trying to balance this work too. Um, and this work is very low compensated work. So some people do put it to the lower priority. Uh, and so that's, that's definitely something I would say, just be patient. I often tell authors when they're waiting those many months trying to be patient is that it's really healthy to take a break from the manuscript because once they get those reports back, um, they'll be able to go back and look at the manuscript with much fresher eyes and that that's an advantage. And the second thing is to remember is that at the end of the day, you need to be ready to take some criticism, but it's all in the goal of making a promising project stronger. Yeah, that's very important to remember. And it's you know, it's pretty pretty rare 
I think for you for you to get only one person's feedback, uh, unless it's a you know really quick kind of turnaround, uh, you normally get at least two, and so there might be conflict in those, and that's a, that's something that having a, a a good editor will help you resolve. And I've definitely received reports where reviewer A said I should burn it down and start over. And reviewer B says, this is the best thing since sliced bread. And, you know, I'm sitting there with these two competing ideas, uh, neither of which could possibly be true. Uh, and so, then, <laughs> you know, sit, being able to sit down with your editor and walk through kind of line by line in the peer reviewer, uh, the peer review reports to, uh, to make sense of what works for your project. Sometimes your editor will say, you know, you really do need to do this thing. That's a good point. And other times they'll, they'll agree that, you know, maybe you should go the path you want to go, uh, you're the path you planned on. Those peer reports are seldom ever strict. You must do this in order to move forward. They're often just suggestions uh, for you to consider as you move forward, but consider them seriously. So we've been talking a lot about uh, amplifying underrepresented voices in publishing. And I think a lot of people who don't have an advanced degree might feel intimidated about submitting to university presses, but I think them doing so is probably an important way to help amplify some of those voices. So what else uh, can people share in their proposals that might show that they're an expert in their field? Well, first of all, I think that there is a big conversation about equity and the lack of equity in university press publishing right now. And I think that there is a broad agreement amongst university press editors that we need to do everything we can to amplify voices that have been historically overlooked, both in society and, and overlooked by, by university presses. So I think that there's, first of all, this is a very live conversation that's happening right now. So this is, this is a great question to ask. I think in terms of explaining expertise, I think it's less about demonstrating I have a PhD or I had a fancy fellowship. I think it's a matter of saying, here's what I learned about this and how, you know, and, and for the purposes of the book, this is the methodology that I used to find out what I found out. You know, if I wrote a local history, um, and even though I'm not a PhD historian, I went to these archives and I read these books and I did this research and I did these oral histories. And I think that if you can, you know, lift up the hood of the car and show the kind of engine show the kind of work that you put into the project, I think that's an expertise that a lot of editors will respect as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I would second that. We uh, At WVU Press, there are a fair number of people who are who don't hold higher, uh, higher degrees, but who write amazing books. And so, yeah, I think being able to demonstrate uh, from personal experience or from, you know, from credentials you've earned the hard way uh, that you, you can do this. Uh, that would be useful. It's also worth remembering that just because you hold a PhD in a discipline, that's not automatic entry into a university press contract. Uh, you have to do that same work with a high, with, with if you have a doctorate, uh, you still have to do that same work to prove that you've done, uh, you've put in the good faith effort to do the best research you can, and and so that kind of levels the playing field there. Uh, my one of the conversations I had early on uh, with my editor at Oxford. Uh, was, you sure you've written a dissertation, but nobody wants to read that. Uh, so you have to learn how to make this a book. And a big part of that was doing additional research, honing my storytelling craft. Uh, I really, I had to put a lot of work in to kind of translating 
PhD dissertation appropriate writing into something that other people would want to read. Uh, so again, that's a, that's a thing that if your writerly craft is strong, uh, that might actually put you in an advantage over people who hold PhDs. I can give a couple of quick examples of books that we have published by people without PhDs to let you know how we think about expertise. Uh, we have a book that's published about right now, actually, like coming out next week called The River That Made Seattle, A Human and Natural History of the Duwamish. And the Duwamish is, the, Duwamish is a river that's not very well known, but it is in fact run right down through the city of Seattle. And it's fa most famous for people who have heard of it as being a super fun site. It was long used for industrial uses. It's a big mess. Um, the author of the book, B.J. Cummings, she's not an academic. She's a longtime environmental activist, and she actually played a role in campaigning to get the river cleaned up. And she's somebody who did a lot of homework. She did a lot of research. She talked to a lot of players involved to write this book, The River That Made Seattle. But she's somebody who definitely does, doesn't have traditional academic qualifications, but she certainly has a lot of time in the trenches, so to speak, that when she speaks on this topic, people listen. In my series at WVU Press, I'd point to your book, uh, Becca, which which I think does a it, you know, as it's unfolding and developing uh, on the daily at this point, you know, it does a great job of blending memoir with original oral history and archival research. There's no one uh, I think who's going to write about the punk scene of North Central West Virginia quite the way that you do, because you witnessed it as a teenager and now are able to look back on it uh, and bring kind of the, the journalists and historians craft to the, to, to that work. So. Well, thank you. It's good to hear about different things that make people experts. And Travis, I'm wondering if you could speak, you said more generally that the kind of writing that you do for a dissertation is different than the kind of writing you're going to do for a book that you want to read that other people are going to want to read. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more specifically about what makes that writing different? Oh, sure. Well, you know, there's a, a great book by uh, William Germano, I believe is how he pronounced it, who was, he was at University of Chicago Press for many years. Uh, and it's called From Dissertation to Book. And it's a very, it's a thin volume and it outlines a lot of these, uh, these sorts of differences, but, you know, a, dis a doctoral dissertation or a master's thesis or, you know, all that is written for the people who are going to award you the degree. And so there's a certain amount of like demonstrating that you've read everything in the field that is necessary in a dissertation that's not necessary in a book or research methodology. You know, a lot of people reading a book don't care how you found the information. They just want to learn about what you learned. <laughs> and so, you know, writing a dissertation requires that you kind of show all of the steps by which you get to these conclusions and a book very i mean very rarely in say fiction or sorry in uh, history doesn't really require that sort of uh, that sort of an approach uh, and so you know i tell the folks who want to who are contributing to my series uh, to really think about storytelling as as an essential part of the work you have to find a way to get your reader invested from the very beginning or else they're gonna they're not gonna keep keep reading. Uh, whereas a dissertation reader has to plow through; it's part of their job, uh, and so they they'll read all of your citations and all of your theoretical apparatus uh, and that sort of thing. Of course, that varies by discipline. If you're writing a book in critical and cultural theory and you don't lay out all of that, then you might not get published either. So, as somebody who's kind of on the edges of this or at the beginning of 
getting to know this world, I follow some people who are more involved on Twitter, and I get this kind of sense that there is some contention both between university presses and maybe some other parts of publishing and also with presses and their home universities. I don't know if I have the the right kind of sense of that, but maybe, <laughs> especially Andrew, since I know we're in the same kind of Twitter sphere, if you could speak to what I'm seeing and maybe give a little bit in, of insight about what about what that means and what those relationships are. Sure. If I follow um, what you're saying, I think most university presses are in a position right now where they want to consciously build bridges and partnerships with their home universities. And it's really important that the university press is as, part, as, as much of a part of campus as the football team and the university press sees itself as getting the name of the university out in ways that would never get out otherwise. I think I'm going to guess the tensions you're referring to are between university press publishing which is nonprofit, some would say anti-profit, versus large commercial scholarly publishers that publish, uh, that when people complain about the high cost of textbooks, when people complain about the high cost of you know scientific journals and how library money gets spent on those, they're often referring to really large multinational corporations. And university presses are basically the opposite of that. For most university presses, they're going to have, you know, a number of employees from, let's say, four to 40. They tend to be local in nature and in a very different way to these very large multinational commercial publishers that I think that are what, what you're alluding to. And so you know, when people complain about the cost of textbooks or people complain about the, the money that gets spent, university presses are always quick to say, wait, 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 guys. Remember, there are other people out here doing the scholarly books in a way that's nonprofit and where it's part of our mission to make those books as, as affordable as possible. I would I would add on the other side of that, you talked about relationship to the home institution and and Andrew, I appreciate you saying it is a great way to get the you know the the home institution's name out. Um, I think some of the recent discussions that I've been been reading, there are certainly universities who don't see the university press as a as a good investment. Because of that nonprofit or anti-profit kind of kind of operational agenda, and so uh, especially you know as we've continued to tighten budgets at universities, presses sometimes go up on the chopping block, um, and so luckily there are presses out there that are really making a mark regionally uh, or within a particular discipline and, are, and have great leadership who are able to kind of fight against that. Uh, but that is also, I think, a, a tension that you always have to worry about anytime there's new leadership at a university, anytime there's a new budget crisis, uh, that the press it stands more of a chance of being taken, uh, of being disbanded than the football team does. And so, you know, that's that's certainly something to, to be aware of. But, you know, as, as uh, one, you know, one of the other things to consider, too, is university presses often report to varying offices on their campuses, so, you know, there was a point in time at WVU Press where the uh, the press director was part of the English department. Then they were part of the university library. Now they report directly to our provost. Uh, and so uh, depending on kind of where they sit within the university, sometimes you can get a sense of, kind of how stable something is there, at least again, in my experience. You're talking about budget crises. Have you seen the recent pandemic affect the university press world in general? Have you seen the pandemic affect the way production's happening? Uh, absolutely. I would say among 
the authors that I work with, I would have divided. I would divide them into two groups: authors working with small children at home and everybody else. And some people have had an incredible amount of time to be working, and other people have had none. And I totally understand that. In terms of disruption for most presses, as you know, Amazon slowed down, uh, stopped shipping books for a couple of weeks. A number of warehouses uh, closed. Um, a number of printers shut down for a while because of very, various quarantine issues. I think right now, a lot of the supply chains are starting back up. They're still a little off kilter, but it was definitely two months or two or three months of really strong uncertainty about what was going to happen next. I think the next thing on the horizon that people at university presses are watching is what's going to happen with higher ed in the fall. Will students be going back? Will students be buying books? So everybody's holding their breath. I would say if there's any sort of uh, you know, simple phrase to define people who work in university press publishing, though, it's defiantly optimistic. University presses are perpetually on the edge of you know, being shut down or being unfunded. And it's been that way for decades, decades and decades and decades. And people work really hard and we, we, try, we try to get through it. And I think right now, most university presses are trying to think about how they can be proactive in terms of what we need to do to be doing well a year from now, five years from now, and trying not to be uh, reactive and letting, letting events affect us. On the author side of things, I had a book published uh, by Oxford on May 1st and was unable to get copies of the book until uh, maybe two weeks ago. Uh, so it took a little while to get that because the warehouse uh, was shut down and unable to ship anything. Um, and of course, there is absolutely no uh, no book publicity work happening right now. I'm not able to get to Nashville where the, the book is, is set. It's about... Nashville studio musicians, uh, all of the venues where I would do any promotional work are closed, that sort of thing. And so it's definitely, I'll be curious to see how that affects sales uh, in the long run. But uh, at least from a from the author's perspective, when you're so excited about the book coming out uh, and you can't get it, it shows on Amazon that it's published and you can't get it. Uh, it's been a bit of a letdown. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Speaking as a publisher here, Travis, can you tell everyone listening the name of the book so they can go order it and help compensate for all the missed uh, publicity opportunities? You certainly could. I'd be happy to. The book is called Nashville Cats, uh, and, and it is published by Oxford University Press and is available at a friendly bookseller near you. Thank you. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you would like to share about university presses? about um, why they're so important or about um, how to get involved if you're an author who is not a part of that world at all, but are interested. The Nashville Cats was my sixth book with a university press. I have worked with Oxford and I've worked with, with West Virginia University in both instances with a big global house and a, a small regional press. I have not found better champions of my work than university presses. Uh, my, my department does a good job of, of giving publicity. My university does. I do. But honestly, I don't think anyone cares about this work more than myself and the university presses I publish with. Uh, and so I see that as a major uh, advantage of university press publishing. It doesn't matter if there's profit uh, involved. Uh, at the end of the day, they care about profit a little bit. But uh, if you have a good idea, something that will get people reading, uh, then, the, then the university press will care about it and will do great work by your book, generally speaking. 
That was great, Travis. Um, I think what I would add is that if university presses are relatively new to you, the first thing you should do is find some books by university presses, maybe the one that's located in your state, and read them and see if that's your vibe, the sort of serious nonfiction approach where you think, hey, this is the kind of place where my work could belong. I guess I'd also keep in mind that um, a lot of university press editors are very active on Twitter. And they often have public conversations about what makes them happy or what makes them unhappy in book proposals or what topics they're excited excited about. And it's all really public. I mean, if you wanted to follow that on Twitter, an easy thing to do would be to go to the uh, hashtag ReadUP. That's an acronym for University Press, hashtag ReadUP. A lot of editors will post on that. You can start following some and pick up on that conversation and see who it is that you might connect with that is uh, interested in publishing material on, on your area. Thank you both so much for joining us today, Andrew and Travis. It's been super informative and I know our listeners will really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Writing Block podcast. Today and every day, Writing Block affirms that Black Lives Matter and we stand in solidarity with Black authors and all writers.